I keep talking about how it's nice to start coming out of the pandemic. And as I do that, uh, part of that's based on the fact that uh, through my reading and especially following certain things within the news recently, people are actually starting to take stock of how the whole COVID thing uh, affected us. And it's interesting when you start to pour through the data and you start to look at some of the things that people are finally realizing uh, at this present time, um, the various ways in which it has affected society. Um, for instance, the data is starting to show us that uh, even though it was a challenge to us, there were a lot of illnesses, um, people died, uh, and there's no way to get around that. Despite that reality, there were still some actually good things that came out of the pandemic. Uh, one of those, and maybe you've heard about them, is the fact that there were a lot of people who either began um, new good habits or they actually returned to some habits that they previously had participated in. Um, one of the big things was people fixing up their homes, remodeling, uh, cleaning up their yards, something they'd been putting off for a long time, and now that they were at home all the time, they, they wanted to make things uh, look nicer. Another one was families were forced to actually spend a lot of time together. And, and while that might have been a challenge to some, it did mean actually the opportunity to have more quality time uh, with the family. And you can see other examples of items that I put up there that were talked about as good habits that, that came out of the pandemic. The reality is, is though, despite all the good, there was also a lot of a bad. I'm, there's just no two ways about that. Not just the sickness and, and the deaths that came from it, but as you can imagine, the data is also showing that during COVID, a lot of bad habits uh, were either started or, or people returned to them. Uh, despite the fact that people did have the opportunity for far more time together, uh, one of the things that's been measured is there was an increase of people spending time on their electronic devices. So you could be in the same room with your family, um, but you still ignored them because everybody was on their phone or iPad or watching TV, whatever. And, and it seemed like during the pandemic that just increased even more. Uh, you can see some of the variety of others. People don't know how to dress for work anymore. Uh, people don't know how to follow work hours anymore. The, the big one was a lot of people developed some really bad eating habits during the pandemic. They had so much time on their hands, they, they didn't know what to do with it. So those are some of the bad habits that came out of it, which, which raises this interesting question. How is it that some people um, through that period of time developed some good habits? And why is it that others ended up developing bad habits? What, what's the reasoning behind that? I guess it really goes back to a more basic question. Where do habits come from in the first place? How is it that we develop habits. Let's use one that's pretty common amongst us to help try and figure that out. Why do we bite our nails? To save our expenses on manicure. Nah. Nail biting or onychophagia is a bad habit and there's no specific reason why people do it. Ha! I'll find the reason in only two seconds. Don't bother. A habit forms due to three things. A trigger, action, and reward. So, in case of nail biting, a research suggests that a broken nail which is hurting can be a trigger. Biting and removing it is the action. When the broken nail is taken off, the pain is reduced and we feel better. This is our reward. Now, if we again encounter similar triggers like a broken nail, we repeat the same action to get the reward, which gradually causes onychophagia. That is, we get a habit of nail biting. 
Okay, that makes a lot of sense, uh, the trigger, uh, the action, the reward. It makes a lot of sense when we're talking about good habits. I mean, I get that. But does that really explain where bad habits come from? Maybe there's some temporary relief from getting rid of that hangnail, but is it really a reward to have nails that look kind of ugly? And after a while, if you bite them long enough and hard enough, your fingers start to hurt. That doesn't really seem like an upside. It doesn't really feel like a reward. The truth of the matter is, and we probably never have looked at it this way, the habit of nail biting actually helps us to understand a little bit better today's lesson on sanctification. Maybe you never thought you could actually get something good out of nail biting, but it's the perfect metaphor, if you will, of what Paul is going to describe in our lesson today as he writes to the Romans about the reality of having two different personalities, two different motivations within us. The old Adam, as it's referred to, the sinful nature, and the new man, the, the godly nature that's been restored to us. And the thing is, and what we find out not only with habits, but then also in our spiritual lives, these two opposing forces are always, always at war. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. I hope at this point in our sanctification series and study, I don't need to rehash everything about Paul's letter to the Romans. In fact, uh, we're going to actually have six different lessons from this one epistle which Paul writes, and today is actually the third of those Roman lessons that we uh, plow through. That should tell you right off the bat that in the book of Romans, Paul talks a lot about sanctification. So I'm not going to go over that ground. Hopefully it's very familiar to us, but I do want to take this as an opportunity to remind you of one specific reason why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this letter to these early Christians. Um, The Roman church was unique in that there seemed to be a pretty even mix of Gentile Christians and Roman Christians. And and though they were all one in Christ, they were still working working through the odds and ends of the differences of their ethnicity. And and one of the challenges uh, became how they would choose to function and run the church. And so as a result of that, there was this growing tension that existed within the Roman congregation. And, And that's one of the prompts which the Holy Spirit used to have Paul write this letter to them because he wanted to teach them a deeper understanding of what sanctification is all about. How do we show our thankful love to God? And until you understand that, there's actually no way to properly show our thankful love to each other. And that's what the Romans were struggling with. So that becomes the background, uh, not only for this lesson, but then ultimately for a lot of what we study out of the book of Romans in regards to sanctification. And this specific section begins with this one little word, so... And I've told you again and again, and I think I'll just keep doing that, especially for your own private Bible study, um, that as you read through Scripture, every single word the Holy Spirit chose to write down is extremely important. Even the little ones, the seemingly insignificant ones. This whole section starts out with a tiny word, ara. And it's a particle, which really, it's like a flag going up, going, hey, Paul is getting to the point in chapter 7 where he's finally reaching the conclusion of everything he has said. 
And Ara sets us on this path where we have to take a combination of things, everything that Paul just taught to the Romans in this chapter, which was, by the way, our epistle lesson, and we'll work through here in just a minute, plus combine that with everything we've learned about sanctification as one of the Holy Scripture's teachings. You add that together, and you can finally come to a pretty thorough and concise conclusion of what Paul is trying to say to those early Christians that ultimately has application for us today. So let's do this. Let's work through this process. First, we need to understand what is it that Paul has just said in the first 13 verses of chapter 7 of his letter to the Romans that helps us to reach this understanding of the conclusion that he's trying to draw for them. Well, there's a lot of information here, and it's very complicated, so I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to break it down into four parts and just in a maybe summary fashion, try and help us to understand what Paul has written, what we just read as our epistle lesson. This first section about that woman as the illustration being married to a man, Paul's starting out this discussion by saying, you are bound by the law up until the point where a death occurs. And he's not talking about anything spiritual right now. He's just using an earthly example, that of the marital covenant, the marital relationship. For a woman to go and get a second husband while the first one is still alive was not only wrong, it's sinful. It's against the law. But of course, if that first husband dies and she remarries, there's there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a sin. That's not against the law. Uh, And it happens many times in our lives because of the reality uh, of sin and death. So that's the premise Paul is setting up. Uh, The law matters up until the point of death. Now, he's going to take this earthly illustration and now apply it in a spiritual way. You also died to the law through the body of Christ. So in the same way that that wife could remarry when her husband dies, in a sense, we are now moving towards a new relationship or covenant based on a death. Not a human death per se, like a husband, but a human-slash-divine death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. When Christ died on the cross, that released us from the law. It's, in a sense, dead to us, in that the law can no longer convict us before God, even though God is holy and we are not because of Christ living perfectly in our place, he offers that up for us to God the Father. So in God the Father's eyes, we are perfect. The law cannot condemn us, nor can it punish us for anything we've done wrong because on that same cross, Jesus Christ paid for every single sin we have ever committed. In essence, Paul is saying to the Romans, you are free from the law. The law is dead to you, or you are dead to the law, however you want to put it. The law, God's holy law, do this, don't do that, no longer rules or controls your lives, which is a breath of fresh air. And then he takes them into the third part. Well, the conclusion of that is is that the law is useless in one sense. It's dead, but it still has a use in another sense. And this is where we are also, if you will, jump in a little bit to some of the things that we've talked about already in this series. There's a wide sense of sanctification, what God has done for us. And then there's the narrow sense of sanctification, what we're working through now, what we do out of love for God. When it comes to the wide sense of sanctification, or what we would call salvation, the law is completely useless. You cannot do enough good in order to stand before holy God and go, you got to accept me in heaven because I'm a pretty good person. Remember, he's holy God. Heaven is, if you will, the eternal expanse of holiness. And to be anything less than perfect does not permit us to proceed. So when it comes to salvation, 
the law is dead. In fact, Christ even said that in our gospel lesson. If you want to try and use the law in order to be rescued or saved, you have to be even holier than the Pharisees. You've got to remember the Pharisees was that one group of the Jewish religion which thought themselves pretty much perfect because not only did they think they kept God's law, but they wrote a whole bunch of extra laws and then told everybody they had to follow those too. Jesus' point is nobody can be that perfect. Nobody can be that good except for Christ himself. So the law is dead. And yet Christ tells us and teaches us, as Paul does, that the law is not without a use, meaning it doesn't save us, but there is another use in the law that is very helpful in regards to the narrow sense of sanctification. It does tell us what God wants and what God doesn't want. And that isn't, okay, I better do this so God will love me. No, it's I want to do this because God loves me. It's a guide to show us what is pleasing to our creator and our rescuer and what isn't pleasing. So the law still can serve a function or a use. It's just that it's never going to save you. It's never going to rescue you. It's dead. But as far as guiding us, it's alive. Which brings to Paul's final point in that epistle lesson, if I do not do what I want to do, and I agree that the law is good as it is, it's no longer myself. It's that complicated section of chapter 7, and I'm not going to belabor it here. Because lo and behold, this section is actually going to be one of our future lessons from Romans. We're going to work through this confusing, frustrating section of this chapter to understand even greater detail what it means to, if you will, bury the old Adam and, if you will, nurture the new man. It's an introduction, this lesson that teaches us this war between these two natures is a real battle. It's a real fight. And there's ways to arm ourselves and win this battle. There's things that God has done for us to help rescue us. What Paul is trying to teach us and remind the Romans is that within us, there's these two opposing forces. One hates God and doesn't want to do a single thing that God says. You can't convert the old Adam. He will hate God until the day you die. But then by God's grace, there's also within us this new man, the results of faith which the Holy Spirit empowers and leads us to love God and want to serve God. And these two are constantly fighting with each other. Now, when we combine what Paul says in this section leading up to our lesson with everything that we've learned in this study of sanctification, we can start to understand what it is specifically Paul is trying to teach these Romans who were struggling to get along with each other. Even though they knew that Christ paid for their sins, they weren't taking that reality of love and translating it in their day-to-day -day lives, even amongst their own Christian brothers and sisters. My conclusion is, is that we have this one personality, this one nature within us. And we've been spending a lot of time up until recently talking about what this new man is that it is the result of God the Holy Spirit gifting us with faith. It's not our responsibility. It's not to our credit that the new man now exists within us. It's just that when God comes and touches our hearts and our lives and creates this gift of faith, it then empowers us. It gives back to us something that was stolen from us through sin. It gives us the ability to once again be the creatures that God himself created. But along with that reality is also this harsh reality. 
that because of Adam's rebellion, every father will, try, will deliver children into this world who will have that same sinful hatred towards God. These two are constantly at odds with each other. And it's this that we're starting to now take a look at in a much more specific way. Just how dastardly is this old man? Just how evil is the old Adam? And why is this enemy probably of all the ones that we have to fight against and face one of the most difficult for us to actually overcome? This may be a review for many of us, but I don't know that we can cover this ground enough. The better we understand the sinful nature, the better we understand the old Adam, the better we understand this enemy, the more prepared we are to fight it. Yes. Man is a creature gifted with reason and will. He is created to participate in the divine life. He can know God as his creator and his goal, and he can respond to God's love with his own. But he doesn't. Man reckons that man is awesome. So awesome, in fact, that he couldn't care less about God and his commands. Man doesn't order his life towards God, but declares himself the center of the universe. Sounds exciting, but really, it's not good. Man is not the source and end of all things. He is not the center of the universe. Things are not ordered as he sees fit. Imagine the following. If I put a tomato plant in a closet for three months and firmly declare that it will be great for the plant, I still won't get any tomatoes. The nature of a tomato plant requires, among other things, light, water, and heat. What I want doesn't really matter. So when man tries to place himself at the center of all things, it's not going to work. Not for him, not for anything else. By wanting to be like God and setting himself up in God's place, he destroys the order between himself and God and the order between himself and the rest of creation. And this is what happened at the beginning of the human race. It's called the fall of man or original sin. The fall has bitter consequences for humanity. First, man loses his friendship with God. Second, he is afflicted with a series of physical evils. Instead of crossing over peacefully into the afterlife, there's death, tearing body and soul apart. Man is also afflicted by pain and has to battle the disorder of his own powers within him. These consequences are painful, but they're not retaliation or the vengeance of God. Indeed, they are the very first step of God towards fallen man. In experiencing his own frailty, fallen man can begin to realize that he's on the wrong path, that he's not the center of the universe, that things do not all revolve around him. And this is a good thing to realize. He can begin to understand that as a created being, he is ordered to his creator, that the isolation in his inner self is painful and destructive. Man has to recognize this and turn back to God. The consequences of the fall of man can be felt even today. We experience the disorder in our soul and emotions, and our mortality, the fact that our death is coming someday, weighs heavily on us. This state that we are born in is called the state of original sin. Original sin is not the same as personal guilt, but it describes the condition of fallen mankind that we inherit. That is what the fall and original sin are. 
The fall happened at the beginning of mankind. The state of original sin is its consequence. Again, that may be a review for us, but I think it's an important review so that we understand what Paul is trying to teach these Romans. Even though they all were fully aware of what Jesus Christ had done for them, even though they had all been blessed with faith, there was still something buried deep within them that compelled them to want to fight with their fellow church members. Where would that come from? And it got to be a bad habit for them. So this is Paul's conclusion. He's talking about this law that's at work within him, that there are these two opposing natures that are constantly in conflict with each other. That's why when Paul says, there are things that I want to do, and that's the new man speaking. I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to show God that I love him. I want to show God my thanks for not only giving me life, but giving me my life back. And I might actually be in the process of doing that, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're ambushed, and it's like, no, I'm not going to do those good things. It's like that bad habit that pops back up. There's some compulsion that we just can't seem to overcome, and it's a serious battle. It's a war that we're fighting, Paul says. Paul needs them to understand a couple things about the old Adam, the sinful nature. And oftentimes, and, and maybe you remember uh, spiritual teachers talking about the unholy three, our sinful nature, the devil himself, and the sinful world in which we exist. And none of them are easy opponents. They're all enemies. But the sinful nature seems to be the one that really has the tightest grip around us. There are times where you can literally look at a situation or maybe into the eyes of a person and go, that's the devil at work. And the red flag goes up, and it's like, I need to stay away from that. Or you don't need to read the news all the time or watch TV to recognize that this world is going down a path and following a way of life that is in not compliance with what God created. But when those temptations, when those evils come from within us, when we can't trust ourselves, we end up being our own worst enemies. The sinful nature gives us a propensity towards sin, meaning that if we have the choice to sin or not, the sinful nature will always take us in the sinful direction. It's like water seeking the path of least resistance. It always wants to do the ungodly thing, always, and it will never change. Now, Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to help me? He finally, if you will, gets to a point in this lesson with the Romans that they're probably all thinking, if the battle's that hard, why even bother? Why even fight it? If it's that big of a challenge, and it's one that, at least on the surface, seems like we lose more often than we win, then why even, why even try? Is, is there any way to win this fight? Well, for us, no. But Paul says, do not lose hope. Look at what he says next. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're weak, sinful human individuals. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is God. And he doesn't expect us to wage this war on our own. In fact, he tells us that he is the champion that we need and the one who, le who leads the battle charge. Think about this. The same God who gave his life in the wide sense of sanctification to rescue us from hell and damnation and to give us comfort even as we face our own death is the very same God who wants to grow within us the narrow sense of sanctification. There's no other way to say this, but Jesus Christ gave his life to give us our lives back. And I think sometimes we've lose, lost sight 
of what a true blessing that is. Part of it comes from the fact that I think we often underestimate just how much our Savior loves us. We talk a lot about him going to the cross, and thank God we do. But his job wasn't done then. Three days later, he rose to prove our salvation complete, but then to empower us to actually enjoy, listen carefully, to enjoy this life. I know you don't probably hear it a lot, but Paul already talks about that. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And you can already see where I'm going to go with this. I think part of our misunderstanding and, if you will, our lack of estimating how much God loves us is sometimes as we read our Bibles and study Scripture, the translators haven't done us any real good service. Because while this word that Paul writes can be rendered as slave, the context doesn't really support that. God doesn't enslave us into sanctification. But he does, if you will, give us the ability to serve. Now, Paul tells us to look at it this way. If you have the option, the choice, to either serve God or to serve yourself, if you have the choice between true freedom or, if you will, being enslaved to your own evil desires, what would be the right choice? What would be the good habit? What would be the way to win this battle? And you're all thinking, duh, pastor. We know the answer to this one. But Paul writes it down by the Holy Spirit's direction for a specific reason. He doesn't want us to take this too lightly. I think this is why we so often misunderstand sanctification. Adam and Eve were created to enjoy this life. Adam and Eve were created to serve God in this world. The reality is sin wrecked that. But sanctification gives us part of that back. We talk about the end goal being eternal life in heaven, and we should. But that's not the only goal of our faith. And I think sometimes because we focus only on that, we forget there's a lot of time between today and when I finally cross the threshold to heaven. What about that? What does God want for me in that time span, not only for my life, but also in how I serve God? Sanctification is a recreation of what God originally gave Adam and Eve. Not perfectly, You'll never find a perfect day in this world because of what sin has done to it. But there are certain aspects and parts of the Christian life that can truly be a reflection of what God wanted for us all the way back at the time of creation. Let me show you how that works. If we have the opportunity to choose, and sanctification, if you will, makes us stand next to Adam and Eve and gives us that choice. It gives us back our free will and our ability to think these things through by God's direction and God's love. As God empowers our sanctified lives, we actually can choose, do I want to serve God today or do I want to serve myself? And we've got a whole history that every time we serve God, there's always a blessing attached with that. And every time we serve our own selfish desires, there's always a downside or a condemnation with that. Now, it doesn't become our motivation. We had a lesson on motivation, and the reward or the outcome is not that. But there is something here that we should certainly understand and look at is every time I choose the path in which God directs me, every time I live my life the way in which God designed, I'm blessed. My life is not only blessed, but in many ways it's simpler. 
It's easier. Again, it doesn't mean my life is perfect. It doesn't mean I'm not going to face challenges. But when I face those challenges, I have a completely different attitude than if I chose the other path and I followed my own sinful desires and I actually led myself into temptation and I stood there with guilt and shame going, why did I do this again? It's like bloody fingernails because I followed my sinful nature and it led me in the same sick place. And it's never good. And it never makes us happy. And here's the irony. We both want the same thing. What God created us for and deep inside what the sinful nature ultimately wants, what the world preaches it can give us is things like peace and harmony and justice. That's what God created us for. That's, that's what we want. The only thing is, is God designed a way to get there. The world didn't. The world offers all kinds of various paths that never leads us to what it promises. It's like a bad habit with a reward where we end up bloodied and hurting. And so God says, I've got a better way. I've got a design for your life. Follow this path. It's speaking to the new man which can answer that call. And so now we recognize we have this struggle, this battle. Do I listen to the voice of God or... Do I listen to myself? And you know where that leads. Do you enjoy feeling ashamed? Do you enjoy feeling like you're carrying around this load of guilt? Do you enjoy having to go back and face God and go, I, I did it again? And it, it, it's not because God doesn't love us and God isn't quick to forgive us. It, it, we put ourselves through that. How disappointing it is to know all of the right answers, to have all of the truth, and still find ourselves in a cesspool of pig slop going, I did it again. I followed my own nature. Or do we prefer to actually follow God's design for our lives? Not only because it helps us along on our journey towards the promised land, but because every single day of that journey becomes truly a blessing. When challenges and troubles do come, when our enemies do attack us, we have a completely different way of seeing that. God doesn't send those evils, but interestingly enough, he can use every single one of them to lead us in a better place. And even when we try to do the right things along our own path or journey, it always ends up in a bad way. You see, sanctification lets us stand back in Eden, if you will, and choose the tree of life or the tree of death. And that's been really one of the blessings of this study is it helps us to understand that the end goal is eternity with God, but there is so much more that God wants for us here and now. There are so many blessings that God wants to give us, but there's only one way, one direction to get there. You know, this is maybe one of the more challenging sections of this study that we're going to go through. Because in a, in a sense, there's an accountability and, and personal responsibility we're going to have to start to honestly deal with. It, it doesn't work for us anymore to just go around saying the devil made me do it. Uh, understanding both the sinful nature as well as the new man reminds us that God created us as amazing, unique individuals and the crown of his creation. But as that, God says, there are certain gifts I've given you and certain expectations I, I have of you. And when I give you, when I hand you the gift of life, I want you to treasure it and use it as a blessing, not only to give thanks to God, but to truly be a blessing to each other. Or there's the other side of the battle. You can take the easy way out. 
You can listen to your own voice. You can listen to the world. You can even listen to the devil, and it's always going to take you to that bad place that nobody wants to be. It's another bad habit that we have to, by God's grace, break. And it's going to be a a complicated section we now work through. I I want to just be completely honest with that. Getting our heads around these two natures within us that are constantly uh, playing tug-of-war with each other. And and I'm sure there will get to be points. I I know I've had that already even as I study through these lessons. It's like, man, this is a lot of work. Is it worth it? By God's grace and, and many of the things that Scripture records for us, he says a resounding, it is. And after all, why not fight this battle? Because... You know what? We're already at war. What does it mean to overcome? It's written in Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as also I have overcome and sat down with my Father on his throne. We all have a flesh full of lusts, which try to make us think or act against God's will. The flesh with its lusts can be compared to an army camp full of enemies, ready to fight and which I need to overcome. I experience temptation when a lust comes up from the flesh as a thought or feeling, and I am aware that to give into or to agree with this thought would be to sin, that is to do what I know is wrong. A temptation is always conscious. I come to a moment of decision. So I haven't sinned when a thought first pops into my mind, even though it may make me feel dirty. This temptation is an opportunity to overcome, and God has given me the weapons. My sword is the word of God, and my shield is faith in God's power, and he has given me a helmet called salvation. Using these weapons, I get my strength to say no in the temptation, and that is overcoming. Overcoming in one temptation, one thought, is one enemy defeated. It may not feel like I have overcome because immediately another thought can come up and it seems like I am right back where I started. But when we speak about overcoming sin and victory over sin, it doesn't mean that our flesh is completely removed or that we are sinless. Overcoming in one temptation is a definite victory, but it doesn't mean that I am never tempted to the same kind of sin again. Each temptation reveals another enemy in my flesh, which in turn must be defeated. A war is made up of many battles, and my goal is to win the war against my lusts. For that, I have to be dedicated. If I should fall in one temptation, I may have lost the battle, but it doesn't mean that I have lost the war. I have to get up and keep fighting. It takes a lifetime to win this war, But as I faithfully fight the enemy, overcoming in temptation after temptation, battle after battle, I will notice that the lusts in the flesh start losing their power. I'm not so easily tempted to the same sin anymore. I don't fall as easily, and it becomes easier to say no 